0: The following is a presentation by The Tabernacle, a community of changed lives. For more information regarding service times, or if you would like to make a donation to The Tabernacle, you can do so by visiting our website at www.thetabchurch.com. My name is Tim. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm so glad you're here. I am grateful for sunshine. I am grateful for warm weather. Uh, I'm grateful for chairs to sit in in the sun. Amen. Okay, uh, I'm feeling it. I don't know about you guys, but uh, it was a long winter. And I've got a lot of uh, pent up to get out, so I hope you buckle in. Um, It's going to be intense. No, come on. Yeah. Bring it. Bring it. Anybody else? We're going to bring it. Thank you, Ben. Now I can set my stuff down and I can start preaching. So, uh... Before we begin into uh, the portion of Joshua that we're going to study today, uh, I want to give you just a little bit of an, uh, maybe an insight into who uh, I am and who I was. Because I think it's really important to look at history. Uh, so there was a time in my life when uh, I was living uh, as pagan as could be, and I was very satisfied with that as long as I didn't look at any portion of reality. Uh, I was fearful, I was in pain, I was frustrated, and I didn't know what to do with a f- figurative of hands, right? I had no clue what to do in my life. Uh, so I started going to church with my wife because she said so, so I did. Uh, and, and so I went to this church, and um, as I'm there, I realized there's a dress code at this church. Uh, and this is dressed up for me. Like, this is really dressed up. Uh, However, this church had, uh, the dress code for guys was uh, khaki tannish pants, Argyle socks, penny loafers, and polio shirts. And everybody wore them. Right? Uh, And there was, you know, so I'm sitting there feeling way out of place, anyways. And then in my mind, I would wait. See, I I grew up a preacher's kid, so I'm a little theologian, and I know Scripture really well, even though I didn't believe any of it at that time. Uh, I'm waiting for the pastor to make a mistake. And as soon as he did, whether he pronounced something wrong uh, or said something maybe a tiny bit out of context, or if he coughed too loud in the mic, uh, I didn't have to listen to anything else he said, right? That was me. Uh, Brilliant way to live, right? I mean, just... You know, completely fearful. Uh, But that's how it was for me. Uh, And and then these changes began to happen in my life, and I end up where I am today. And it's a bona fide miracle. Uh, I'm a wicked, weird person. Uh, Got a tiny brain that uh, works in overdrive. Uh, But God has redeeming qualities about me, and he's chosen to use them. So I'm sitting on my deck, which is a common theme, if you've been here at all, uh, because decks are a gift from God, because they have chairs and sunshine. So I'm sitting there, and I'm thinking about this, and I'm thinking about history, right? History, because uh, basically, if we don't study history and understand history, we're going to repeat history. Now, that doesn't just mean successes. That means failures as well. So I started thinking about there was a time when I golfed. I'm the youngest of four boys, lots of activity, and I had never golfed in my life. And my neighbor was an ex-pro, and he was an old guy named Mr. Patrick uh, who drank scotch and talked with an accent that was hard to understand. He was an amazingly cool neighbor. And he decided I should play golf, so he comes over one day with this older set of clubs, gives them, gives me one lesson. He says, this is how you play golf. I'm like, go, okay. So I get asked the next week to join a golf league. So you know why they asked me. I'm a rookie, right? They're looking to somebody to slay out there is what they're really looking for, those wicked people called golfers. So I go and join this league, and lo and behold, I win the league. Oh. <laughs> How weird is that, huh? Now, the story doesn't end there. Uh, for whatever reason, I had this natural swing. It just fit. I don't know why. It's just It just is. Now, I don't golf anymore, uh, because golfers are weird, and I believe that most of them are evil, but uh, that's just my opinion. I, I love to watch golf. I don't play anymore for a variety of reasons. But what I noticed is, I'm looking at my history of golf is I would do really, really well that first few times out every year. And then it would get awkward, and I would start praying and spraying. Any golfers know what that means? Yeah? Somebody? Boom. Phew, boom. Phew. Everything left me. I couldn't figure it out. I couldn't do it. My wife's dad, uh, Kirk, when he was alive, was a phenomenal golfer, scratch golfer all the time, wherever we played. And I was always a little bit intimidated, but I had admiration for his game. And we're playing together up in Traverse City one time, and I'm hitting all over the place. And we're on this tee, and I'm frustrated, and I hit the ball, and it hits like Mach 7. Boom. This is I just ripped it. Unfortunately, I went downhill and hit the lady's red t-ball and just shattered it. Come on, laugh. (laughs) Embrace my humiliation, right? So kaboom, splatter, father-in-law, who I look up to standing there, I said, give me something. Because he never just gave advice. He was fun to play with. So he says, "Uh, okay, Tim, this is what I want you to do. I want you to uh, make your backswing slow. Slow down your backswing. When you think your backswing is slow, I want you then to make it painfully slow. So slow that it almost hurts. And then swing. So I try it and boom, right down the middle. Just amazing. So time goes on and it's uh, later in our relationship. And I go, why did you tell me that? Because it works. He said, because your brain gets in the way. You start to think too much. You get these patterns going. And the next thing, rather than just doing what's natural for you, what was kind of a gift to begin with, uh, you start thinking and you're thinking about your left foot and your right foot and your back swing, And then you're thinking about where your elbow is and does it cock or doesn't it cock and keep your head down and all of these things. And if you know me at all, you know that my brain's too small for all of those thoughts and a successful golf swing. So what does that have to do with anything? It has to do with everything, and I'm going to tie it in later. But you see how I used to go to church, and I was critical. Now you can say that was arrogant and legalistic, and it, yeah, it may have some of those tendencies. It was basically fear, was what it was It kept me from listening because I didn't want to change. I didn't want to have to wear khaki pants. Argyle socks, penny loafers, and polio shirts. I just didn't want to do that. Am I saying that right? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> You're the only one who said yes. Every other head went like this. <laughs> I know that was from my brother. Uh, so I, I want to pray for you and for me before we begin. If you just bow your heads. Father, simple prayer melt our hearts, melt our defenses. Let us absorb into our heart and our mind and our soul your word, your wisdom, how you choose for us to live. In your name, amen. (sighs) Previously on Joshua, we had... uh, story last week of, of a man named Caleb. Caleb was a an older man. He had been one of the original spies. Uh, and, and we're talking about, if you're not familiar with Joshua at all, this is uh, the nation of Israel, uh, a couple of million people moving into the promised land. And they're moving in and they're going to conquer the promised land. And God gives them a very specific direction. Uh, there's a lot of direction that he gives them, but it's uh, drive everybody out. So he doesn't say drive most of them out, drive some of them out. He says drive everybody out and away. There's a reason for that because the inhabitants of the land were dangerous. So God wasn't just being mean. God's evidence was all around, and, and the Canaanites in particular chose to not listen to any of that, and they came up with their own method. And so God realizes Israel is like a baby Christian or like a newly married couple. Or like a freshman in college. Or me. He knows that uh, there's a subtleness. And if we leave pockets around this nation, that trouble is going to come. So he wants them to drive them out. No, he says to them, I'm fighting for you. The battles are already won. This is what we do. So I've already won the battle for you. Follow these simple rules. Follow these simple rules, show up, fight, and the victory is yours. Sounds pretty good. I'm signing up for that one. Assured outcome, assured win, right? So, uh, no, I wouldn't. I would be just like them. See, the reason God said drive them all out is the Canaanites were intrinsically evil people. They had a myriad of gods that they worshipped. God had specifically told them in the Ten Commandments, have no other god before me. Little gods are out there being worshipped that have no power, but they do bring evil into life. And they blind us to the true one, God. This is a brand new nation who has never done this before. And they're now scattering. And these tribes are going to build cities and communities. And God wants it to be good for them. And he says, drive them out. The second thing about the Canaanites. Now, this one's really odd because, you know, just close your eyes for a second. And think of this as a temple, okay? This is what they practice, temple prostitution okay open your eyes so you don't sin sorry a couple of you got that okay that's just weird isn't it I mean men in particular in the wrong circumstances when they're filled with themselves and they forget the message of God can be very susceptible to something like that I mean I'm just saying it men that's us we're weird, we need accountability. But lastly, the Canaanites. The Canaanites practiced child sacrifice. Child sacrifice, killing babies and infants and toddlers to worship false gods. And it wasn't just an occasional thing, they've found archaeological evidence, and it's horrible. So God's saying, get that evil out of here. Don't let that evil, because you want to know what's going to happen is if you don't, you're going to start to listen. your itching ears, what you want to hear, not what you should hear, not what you could choose to follow. And you're probably going to find a beautiful woman, and you're going to marry her, and she's going to be a Canaanite. She's going to bring some of that evil into your home. And if it goes on, it's going to go bad for you. So that was what they were supposed to do, drive them all out. But they don't. They do what I do. See, I have not arrived under any circumstance. Uh, I don't plan on arriving. I'm not gonna, I'm not going to get there when I'm dead. When the end comes, then I'm finished, right? But there's always another thing. God always keeps this other challenge uh, in front of me. Uh, and I can't have any more unfinished portions that I recognize. Because What they did was something called half-measures. And I want to share with you why that phrase, half-measures, means so much to me. This is out of AA literature. I'm a recovering dude. Uh, But it says this. It says, uh, this is what we read before we read the 12 steps. And we read the 12 steps at every meeting so that we don't forget them. Uh, But this group, right? So it says, remember... That we deal with alcohol. Now, everybody in here that has no issue with alcohol, drugs, or mood-altering substances goes, Oh, that's not me. Yeah, it is. Just replace fear, lust, anger, unkind words, selfishness. That's what this is talking about. So it says this. Remember that we deal with sin, okay, cunning and baffling and powerful. Without help, guys in particular, without help it is too much for us. But there is one who has all power. That one is God. May you find him now. Half measures availed us nothing. We stood at the turning point. We asked his protection, that's God, and care with complete Abandon. Previously, in Joshua, we had Caleb, and he was that man. He didn't do half measures. He asked for God's care with complete abandon. God's provision, God's protection, God's plan, God's will. He wanted all of that in his life. And he's this old guy who's been through a lot of battles. And at the end, he comes to Joshua and says, uh, Hey, you want to know what? You're giving out the land. Remember uh, the little deal we made. This is what I want in land. I want... The hill country over there where the giants still live, because I'm not done fighting. And he says this profound thing if God is with us, perhaps we will win. Oh, I want to be Caleb. Do you want to be Caleb? I mean, we all want to be Caleb. What a beautiful, powerful prayer. The leadership of the tabernacle, you know, I'm going to tell you, we emulate as much as possible, Caleb. And there's multiple of us in that leadership and we hold each other accountable and we realize that the human nature, the sin nature that we have does a lot of half measures. History proves that it doesn't work. History proves that things left unfinished will come back and hurt you. God wants to drive the Canaanites out. Not because he's an evil God, but because he's a loving God. And he's starting his nation, and he's saying, get that evil out of here. And they left it unfinished. Here's the evidence of that. Joshua 16, verse 10, it says this. They did not drive the Canaanites out of Gezer, however. So the people of Gezer lived as slaves among the people of Ephraim to this day. Now, that was when that was written to that day. They lived there. They didn't drive them out. What was the command? Drive them out. They didn't do it. It doesn't even give a specific reason. Now, some of the reasons are, you know, fear, obviously, but maybe they were tired. Maybe they wanted just to rest. Now, rest is important for all of us. We need rest. That's why there's a Sabbath. That's why uh, we want to live sabbatically. We want to be wise about how we live and rest is a portion of it. But it's not rest from now on. It's resting to get ready for the next battle. It's going to be in front of us. It's a spiritual world with spiritual warfare. And I'm here to tell you, guys, we live amongst the Canaanites. And that should frighten us just a little bit. See, I don't know where your depth is spiritually. Never heard of Jesus? Glad you're here. Been following him for the longest time? Glad you're here. Living as holy as possible and addressing those unfinished places with full measure rather than half measure? I'm so glad you're here. But if you're like me, I just get lost. I just get lost. I don't know if you've had this happen, but... uh, I will come here, and we are blessed with teaching at this church. Amen? Amen. Okay? It is, because if it doesn't point to Jesus, we don't talk about it. That's the beginning of greatness right there. Not that we're great, but that he is. Everything points to Jesus Christ. I'll have John or Brian preach a sermon, and I am so utterly convicted of that message that I begin to dream of myself like a Caleb. Right? I'm on fire, my soul is like that's it. Now here's the confession part. So I'm a pastor, but I'm a human being. And I'm imperfect and flawed. I get in the car and there's playoff hockey. Praise God for playoff hockey. I love it. Bros who said Amen, Amen playoff hockey's on, and I start to listen to it, and it's an exciting portion of the game, and not only am I listening to the game driving home, but I take the really long way home, if you know what I mean, right? And I get home, and then I'm listening in the driveway, and then I click it off so I can go in and find it, right, and listen some more, and then all of a sudden it's Sunday, And Johnny V's back up and he's preaching and it's another sermon and it's just going and it's got me convicted, and it's like, oh, that's it. I want to be like Caleb. Right? And then there can be a cycle again. Those are called unfinished business. The Holy Spirit convicts us. And we've got this brain that works really weird. We get a path of how we live our week. And if we could map out my brain or your brain, I could pretty much tell you what you're going to do and where you're going to go. Right? And how we end up being, you know, walking excuse machines. That's me. Maybe not you. This is about we, us, me, maybe you. So that's why I was talking about this. God melt the defense. Because I know what it's like to sit there and go, yeah, this really isn't for me. But it is. God promised them. He said, I will fight for you. The victory is already won. He promised them, and yet the Canaanites fail. If they were just to look a little bit back in their history, they would remember the time when they forgot to pray. Well, that's kind of an important part of the deal. They forgot. There may have been a couple of guys going, Hey, Joshua, hey, Joshua, we forgot. And things were too important and busy. And they went and fought a battle and lost. They got their proverbial hind ends kicked. And they had to come with their tails between their legs back and go before God. Thought you said you already won. Yeah, but you didn't pray. And he specifically gave them instructions. Do not make a covenant amongst any people who live in this land, period. Don't do that. And there's a time just in the recent past where the sneaky guys all come in with this trick trick. And they end up making a covenant with people of the land. It didn't turn out well for Israel. It does turn out well for the people of, that made the covenant with the Israel. Because their hearts were right. But then we see in Joshua 17 verse 12. We're going to drive everybody out, right? But the descendants of Manasseh were unable to occupy these towns. Listen. Because the Canaanites were determined to stay in that region. Later, however, when the Israelites became strong enough, they forced the Canaanites to work as slaves. But they did not drive them out of the land. That's me. That's us. That's why we look at history. Um, it doesn't go well for them. If you study further, if you continue reading about this story, the Canaanites end up enslaving the Israelites. Even when the Israelites were strong enough to drive them out, they didn't, they just made them slaves. They just weren't following the simple instructions, drive them all out, I want you to be a pure and holy nation. I want you to be my nation. I want you to call on my name. I'm going to instill simple rules because these rules that are going to be repetitive to you through festivals and ceremonies and, and, and family time. As, as God told them, teach them to your children. So we're going to have conversation that's going to be continually around us. And that's so that we don't fail. That's so we don't get distracted. That's so that we don't live a life of unfinished business. I hope this isn't too heavy because it affects all of us. Every single human being struggles with this. None have arrived. There's one perfect person who came, and and, and, and that's amazing because he didn't leave any unfinished business. That's who we follow. That's who we try to, to be like. So we're talking about all of this ancient history and what the Israelites didn't didn't did do and didn't do. I had a friend one time tell me, you know what? If I would have been an Israelite and I would have seen all of those miracles, I would never have a faith issue. To which I said really kindly, BS. Liar. That's baloney. Because we have miracles all around us if we open our eyes up, you know that your children are miracles? Amen. Do you know that your spouse is a miracle? Especially guys, look how ugly you are in the mirror. Come on. It's a miracle in itself. The miracle of changed lives, the miracle of being a domino and leaving the results to God and then Him coming through. It's a miracle. The church exploding, presenting the gospel of Jesus Christ is a miracle. We have a job to do just like the Israelites, and the Israelites came up with some excuses as to why they didn't do the job. So I want to get this practical, okay? I've got a friend who comes to me one time and, you know, uh, w- w- with a question. And the original question is, uh, hey, I think I might be struggling with alcohol, like, oh, okay, cool, let's talk. And so we talked for a while. And I said, you know what? I, I, I'm not a clinician. I'm not a scientist or a doctor. I can't diagnose you. But why don't you come to a meeting with me? Okay. So they come to this uh, AA meeting with me, and we're around the table. And he shares the moment when he's uh, saying, I think I'm an alcoholic, and uh, sharing a little bit of his story. When you go to AA, you don't get there on a winning streak, okay? This isn't like, hey, look at me. I got a yacht. You know, it's like, hey, look at me. I used to have a yacht. So he's looking down, sharing a little bit of his story, and he looks up, and what's happening is what we term bobblehead, a bobblehead meeting. And he experienced this real life. It's where he's looking around the table, probably expecting some level of condemnation, and everybody's kind of got a smile going, yeah, you're in the right place. Yeah, this is where you need to be. So we fast forward a while. He comes, meetings regularly with me, and then he gets, uh, you know, he's got a family and a business and things get really busy, and you can't make it for a little while, and a little while turns into another six months, and, and he comes up to me and uh, says, hey, man, I'm really struggling. Feels, yeah, you know, I'm not drinking, but, man, it sure feels like I am. What do I do? So in my gentle Tim way, yeah, my gentleness... Uh, I go, oh, friend, if only, I get it, I know it's true, but if only, if only there was, like, an AA meeting (laughs) with people that have struggled with the same thing you have. And let's say they met twice a week right here on campus. If only there were 12 simple steps. Well, miraculously, he didn't punch me. Um, but he got it. And sometimes guys need to do this to get through to each other. Okay? So I don't recommend talking to somebody that way. But at that moment, that's what needed to happen. You needed to be reminded that half measures, a little bit of knowledge, doesn't do you any good. Our brain track is going to keep us in what's comfortable. So today, for you, the prayer I had for you. Where do we struggle? Where are evidence of half measures unfinished? I'll use myself as an example again. So let's say that my wife Heidi and I have a fight. Never happened. (laughs) Heidi and I have a fight. I know she's holy, but I can provoke and our, high, our, our, uh, our fight is usually over something really desperately important like this pen, right? Uh, there's usually hurts and wounds and all of this stuff behind. And uh, we begin to have this fight. And let's say that Heidi and I were using volume and language that we really wouldn't use anywhere else. And it happens. Now, I'm going to tell you that if you're honest, most people who are married and have lived together for more than a week have had this issue. Now, when I get scared and frightened and I don't know what to do, uh, and I'm feeling like maybe somebody's telling me I have to change, the first thing I do is get loud. And then these words come out. And that's happened before. And then we go away and come back and kind of pretend like it didn't happen. Maybe there's some resolve, maybe there isn't. Uh, and then we go on and everything's fine until the next one, right? And I begin to practice in my head that that really didn't even happen. All right? Now let's put it another way. Let's say that uh, same thing happens. And I forgot that I had invited four couples over for dinner. And they had let themselves in and are standing in the kitchen. And they're hearing every word. Why does that make it more real? Than when I do it and they're not there? Do you realize that I've just subtly denied truth about something? Maybe some of the unfinished business we have is in our marriage. Maybe it's guys, do you realize if you're married or engaged, if you're living with the love of your life, that you are actually living with God's daughter? Do you realize that that, at that moment, it doesn't matter who's there or not, it's still reality. And God doesn't deal in fiction, he deals in truth. And he's saying, why are you treating my daughter that way? Now, daughters, sometimes we can fight back a little bit too. Amen, women? No, come on. Amen, women? Yeah, it can happen. We know what buttons to push, don't we? Maybe the unfinished business that we have is in our kids. Remember that time when suddenly you go, oh, Lord, thank you. You've blessed us with four children. And then three weeks later, you're going, why? (laughs) Right? Maybe we're struggling with something there. Maybe there's, there's issues. Maybe we haven't treated them the way we should. Maybe we haven't taught them in our home what the true love of Jesus Christ really means. Maybe we haven't practiced ultimate unconditional love. That also can include discipline. Maybe that's a bit of unfinished business, and you know, I can guarantee you that what you're doing is the same thing that was done to you. And the things that I promised I would never do as a parent, I did every darn one of them. And I dislike that about myself, but it's a reality because it's comfortable and I know. I want it to change, I want it to be Caleb. I want the sermon to last more than just from here to my car. I want it to infect my week. I want it to infect my life. I want it to be in my waking hours that this is what I see and this is what I dream. And that it's a reality and that that God has answers for me. And I want my fear to go away. See, maybe it's work. Maybe, maybe there's conflict there. I, I, I don't know. It could be there's unfinished business there. Maybe maybe we're the source of the conflict. I don't know. Could be not here though. But boy, that was snarky. I apologize. <laughs> maybe your personality leads you to be really overbearing or underbearing, and there's a balance. And maybe the underbearing is you're just lonely. And the fear is keeping you from expressing. And God has a plan for that. And maybe you're overbearing. And maybe your need is to be right. All the time. And you're not. Maybe you've got an addiction. Maybe, you know, the addiction word, it's so goofy. I had an experience one time where... uh, a young man was in a a lot of difficulty and I'd spent a bunch of time and he ended up uh, in some pretty darn serious legal repercussions and uh, I was talking with his family and uh, they were wondering what to do and I said, well, one of the things that wouldn't hurt at all is come to some meetings with me. You know, drugs and alcohol are a big part. And the mom, in this beautiful way, said, she's not, he's not one of them, right? Can you get over to them? We're all addicts. Maybe we need to come up with a different word. The sin that infects our life, it's us. Joshua, in chapter 18, verse 3, has this incredibly gorgeous little part. And even though this is history, it's applicable to right now. And it can begin to answer the question of what happens when we leave today. It says this. 18.3. Then Joshua asked them, these are a bunch of people who haven't got their land yet, how long are you going to wait before taking possession of the remaining land the Lord, the God of your ancestors, has given to you? How long? How long? How long, Tim... Am I going to wait before taking possession of the life God desires for me? How long am I going to let unfinished business rule in portions that are disastrous? Because if I don't exercise those, if I don't get rid of them, if I don't drive them out, I'm doomed. History keeps pointing back. I'm doomed. I don't want to be doomed. Now, does that mean I'm not saved? No. No. But the picture that God has for me at the end of life when I finally achieve the end goal and, and, and I'm in heaven isn't to go, man, there were so many possibilities that you didn't do. I want him to say, Tim Caleb, right? You did good. You kept fighting. Yeah, you weren't perfect, but you did amazing. You did good. How long? how long you may have unfinished business you may have portions of your spiritual life your marital life your work life your connection with Jesus on a daily basis there may be some areas that that are just unfinished and I want to tell you that there's hope but there's hope so I wouldn't give you a sermon like this where we all leave like I suck right That's not it. See, this landing portion here, that means we're getting close to the end. Okay? Out of Romans, chapter 8, verse 27. And I really need you to hear these words because these are words of truth. Okay? This isn't fiction. This doesn't belong to the person next to you or to Caleb. They belong to you to you. Even if you don't know Jesus yet, these words are for you, because I want you to know Jesus, and I want you to know how he loves you. Verse 27, and it says, and the Father who knows all hearts. Oh. Man, that's a scary spot. So you know that little fictional thing I did about the couples coming in, and God knows. God knows. God knows, but that's not for a bit of condemnation. That's not what that's for. I remember being scared as a child growing up in the church that God's watching everything I do and he's just waiting to hit me. No, that's not it at all, but he does know our hearts. He knows what's at the root of that. At the root of it is fear. At the root of it is complacency. At the root of it is his excuses because he gives us such a beautiful answer. So to continue, and the Father who knows all hearts, knows what the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is saying. For the Spirit pleads for us, pleads for you, pleads for me. The Spirit pleads for us in harmony with God's own will. When the Israelites struggled, they were out of God's will. When they were out of God's will, they had reasons. The reasons weren't really valid, even though they made perfect sense to them at that time. But they weren't valid. And they failed to follow God's will, even though it was completely written down for them to follow. Very simply. If only we had that, you know? We do, we have this. Jesus knows, God knows your heart. And he knows that in your heart, there's a Caleb waiting to be birthed or waiting to be strengthened if he's already been birthed and waiting to give us direction. And he's pleading for us. And he's pleading that we have unity as believers in the church worldwide and within the tabernacle and the soon-to-be-opening Manistee campus, that, that our hearts are unified around what? God's will. God's good and perfect will. Do you know what he wants first? He wants you to understand Jesus. He wants you to understand that there's this loving character who lived as a God in man's body and was completely human and had no sin and walked the earth and taught. And He gave us a model of what we're supposed to be to each other as followers of Jesus. Not go isolate and watch a hockey game, but how we're together. And He asked us to come together corporately and He taught us that uh, God the Father is loving. He's not scary. And He's asking us to study history sometimes because that'll give you the clue where this is going to go. And then He's ultimately patient and forgiving when we fail. And when we come back to Him, He's gracious and accepting, and the Spirit pleads for us. His will is made known. His good and perfect will. AA taught me uh, the 11th step. Sought through prayer and meditation to improve my contact with God as I understand Him. Jesus, that's how I understand Him. Sought through prayer and meditation to improve my conscious contact with God as I understand Him. Praying only for the knowledge of His will for my life and the power to carry it out in the moments of weakness there's power in the moments that I need rest it's given in the moments when I need to be Caleb and courageous and take on this issue in my life that is now God has revealed to me and it's it's not pleasing it's not pointing to the cross it's pointing to self and 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 that I need help getting rid of that and He's saying, guess what? Hey, there's this small group called AA. That's a big thing in your life. Great. have done that and I'm still there. But he's also saying, hey, you want to know if the addictions in your life, uh, all of them, they're real. Yeah, Tim, you, you are an addictive personality. You can become addicted to video games. You can become addicted to reading. You can be addicted to porn. You can be addicted to uh, illicit thoughts. You can be addicted to gossip me and the list just kind of keeps going and every single time that I go no half measures his will is shown to me crystal clear and I need you to know one of the places he shows me his will best is you somebody goes bobbleheading to me going I know that there's no condemnation just welcome glad you're here you're in the right place so we've got the congregation and we've got, you know, these smaller things that happen to groups of people. That's a smaller number. And, you know, there, there's Fight Club and it's powerful. Because we sit around little tables and we get some people and we build trust into each other. And then finally we're able to release and go, here's unfinished business. I've tried the half measures. They didn't do anything. Help me. And they do. And there's women's Bible studies, and there's retreats, and there's the firehouse, there's youth events, there's uh, baptisms, there's all of these types of things. And then I know that there are a bunch of people in here that are willing to walk with you individually and not with condemnation, because you want to know what, when you're first with somebody individually, it's nothing but tears. It's nothing but shame and it's nothing but frustration and it's nothing but hurt and it's nothing but pain. And sometimes we need to get rid of that so that we can hear the truth. So that we can believe how Jesus represents us before the King of Kings. The segues perfectly because we're going to move into uh, communion. This is what communion is. This is a, a sacrament that Jesus asks us to do. Uh, And he tells us this. He said, this uh, bread represents my body, which was beaten and terrorized for you. For you. Including Caleb. And this cup, this juice, represents my blood that was spilled and paid the price for you. And he asks us to keep doing it. To do it in small groups and to do it corporately to do it so we remember don't forget Jesus my prayer for myself is that I don't get in the car and turn on a hockey game and forget so I want that taste in my mouth to remind me now the way we do communion here uh, is this uh, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ and you call him your savior I don't care what church you go to. You're welcome. That's it. You don't want to be a member here or a member there. But he tells us to not come with sin in our heart. That means confess. Did this one time with the youth group, and it was the most profound moment. And I'm not encouraging this, but it was, if you've got sin in your heart and it's unforgiven, and you haven't gone to your brother yet, don't come for communion. And we had three people out of 110 come. I was wrecked because is not guilt it's truth but if you can confess to Jesus and you know he takes his sin away then come because this is what Jesus is actually telling us when we take communion and we're remembering is this there is no unfinished business he did it it's done it's over no more is necessary Right, the ultimate I did it all and I'm all in Caleb a man after Jesus his own heart so when you're ready in this time of prayer I'm going to ask you uh, to contemplate this thought this challenge I think that God may open our hearts pretty easily uh, if we allow him what unfinished business do you have What unfinished business might there be that we've just been throwing half measures at? What unfinished business have we just been going, well, just my willpower, I'll change this week. I want you to know that he is there and the spirit is translating and begging the creator of the universe to have unity with God's will. And it is a beautiful, lovely thing that's that you uh, bow your heads in, in your prayer and when you're ready come for communion